This message was recorded at Devoted, a Christ Central Festival for all the family. To find out more about Devoted, please visit devotedevent.org. All right, okay. Good morning, everyone. The rain has found us. Boo. Um, Welcome to, this is uh, Karma Calamity, the live zone on Ecclesiastes. Uh, You can slip out now and no one will judge you uh, if this is the wrong place. Um, What we're going to do this morning is uh, just wrap up what we started yesterday morning. Uh, We're going to look at one text from Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And then we're going to launch into exploring Ecclesiastes and the Old Testament and how we understand a book like Ecclesiastes as Christian scripture. So we're going to say a little bit about that. We're going to touch on all kinds of things related to Jesus and related to how we understand the identity of Jesus and how that pertains to an Old Testament book, which is right in my sweet spot of geekiness. Um, so there might, be, there might be untold excitement for me this morning and hopefully, hopefully not snoring from you. Um, <laughs> So we'll see how it goes. Uh, Let me just pray briefly before we start, and then we shall crack on in with Kaleth again this morning. Father God, thank you for uh, the wonders that you are doing among us. We bless you that you are alive, that you are for us, not against us. Thank you that you are a God who makes himself known. And we want to ask you this morning, as we're gathered together, as you have gathered us, Uh, For this particular session, uh, would you make yourself known to us through Scripture? Would you make yourself known to us in fresh ways? Uh, Would you unsettle some of our comfortable notions and bring us to a place of uh, of seeing you fresh uh, in surprising ways maybe, uh, but in ways that that make us fall in love with you ever deeper? And uh, equip us, Lord, that we might walk well with you, that we might honor you, that we might glorify you in our lives together, our lives as worshippers, our lives as families or friends or employers or employees, in all the different spheres of life that we're in. May we learn how to honor you, how to live wisely and well. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Okay, fantastic. So we're going to, um, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 7 for a few moments this morning as we get going. And uh, I kind of thought that we would start by being stuck in the middle with Q, uh, Koaleth. Does no one get that? (laughs) Okay, yeah, I get it, I get it. Okay, it's, uh, we're going to be, we're going to look at some uh, interesting things that Koaleth has to say. But to begin with, I just would like you to reflect for a moment. Hello. Ah, yeah, okay. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, wonderful. All right, yes, of course, there are probably quite a lot of you. Just put your hand up if you are. This is the first one you've come to of this. Oh, wow, blimey. All right. Uh, Shall I just do it all again? (laughs) Um, What? Okay, so in a nutshell, what we've been looking at is the book of Ecclesiastes. We began with chapter 12. The very last six verses of Ecclesiastes 12 Uh, are like a key that unlocks the meaning of the rest of Ecclesiastes, all that has followed it. Um, And Ecclesiastes 12 is interesting because the last six verses are a different voice 
to the dominant voice throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, it's the, the dominant voice in Ecclesiastes, uh, if you read uh, any English translation of the Bible, uh, you will read something like the preacher or the teacher or the convener or the gatherer or something like that. And they're all English uh, attempts at an English translation of the Hebrew title Koaleth. Koaleth. Uh, and it's not a name, it is a title. What I've done over the course of these live songs is just to refer to Koaleth. And you can kind of, you can say it like a name, and so it makes sense, but it's not a name. Um, it's probably not King Solomon, but it's somebody who sits within a kind of Solomon tradition of wisdom in Israel. Uh, and the basic thing is that in the epilogue of Ecclesiastes, the author of the epilogue, this voice comes in and says, hey, Koaleth, for all his spikiness and weirdness and oddness and the discomforting things that he says, is orthodox and is worth hearing and is a sage and was a teacher of the people and was careful and responsible. And so you should pay careful attention to all that he says. Uh, And he sums up Koaleth's message by saying, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of everyone. Uh, and so what we've done over the, yesterday, we started to look at three passages from the main body of Ecclesiastes that say, fear God. Uh, they refer to the fear of God in different settings. One is to do with everything under creation. Uh, and so we were saying that wisdom, the fear of God looks like living and celebrating life and receiving it as a gift from God. You don't know what's coming. You can't change the past. You can't control the future. But you can fear God in every circumstance and keep his commandments. And that's wisdom. And then we talked about worship and how sometimes in churches maybe like ours, we can raise our hands and jump around and make lots of noise. But that's not a cover. It's not a smoke screen for disobedience in the rest of our lives. And God is looking for hearts of obedience and faithfulness and trust. And so fearing God in that context looks like having an appropriate sense of who God is as God uncreated in a category of his own and everything else as created, including us beings created by God. And fearing God and being wise means recognizing that distinction and living appropriately, uh, not imagining that we can use our words to somehow control God or get him to play ball in ways that we might want him to do. Okay. And so this is Koaleth. And uh, oh, and I should mention that this uh, in Ecclesiastes 12, uh, the words of the wise are described as a goad. Uh, and a goad is a long stick with a nail in the end of it that a shepherd uses to jab a sheep in the butt, to get it to move, to get it to go along and to, you know, get, come on, hurry up. Uh, and it's painful. Uh, one of the ways that we could take that verse is that the, the goad sticks in the flesh. Ouch, it's in. Ah, I can't get it out. And so Koaleth's words in the book of Ecclesiastes are a bit goady. Uh, they stick and prod and they're uncomfortable. But wisdom is uncomfortable at times. It's not a nice, pithy, tidy, easy, smooth, everything over word. It's a word that causes us to go, ouch, but to lead us to fear God and keep his commandments. Okay? Does that help you if you're new? Does that give you a summary? Did I succeed? Steve, is that all right? Thank you, Steve. I'm very grateful to people like Steve who remind me that, yes, there are probably new people. Thank you very much. So... Let's reflect for a moment this morning. I want you to think about uh, whether this is for you personally or just something that you've seen or heard about um, more broadly in the world or in, in the life of somebody that you know. What is the greatest injustice that you have ever seen and or experienced? What's the greatest injustice? What, what have you seen or experienced that was outrageous to you? 
just outrageous because it seemed so darned wrong. The outcome seemed so appalling and unbelievable. Uh, how did it make you feel about life? How did it make you feel about justice? How did it make you feel about God? What kind of response did it provoke in you personally? Now, perhaps you don't need a couple of minutes reflection. Perhaps that is so raw and real for you that it's just below the surface right now. I'd like you to turn to the person next to you for a moment or two and just reflect. I don't want you necessarily to bleed over everybody, but you can share and, and speak and say, yes, it probably might be this for me, or I'm not sure, maybe that. Just, just share for a moment or two, and then I'll call us back in. Over to you. Okay, so I'm fairly sure that for anybody who has lived for more than a year, <laughs> uh, you would have experienced at some point something that to you looked like radical injustice somehow. Um, perhaps even if you're <laughs> less than a year old, you might, you know, I didn't get the milk um, or, or something. Um, <laughs> is that how he rolls, Lucy? <laughs> um, if you have seen and experienced some great injustice that's left you reeling and wondering what on earth is wrong with the world, then it may be of some comfort and encouragement for you to hear that Coaleth, this author of the body of Ecclesiastes, feels your pain to some extent. Coaleth feels it. He might not have walked your exact path, but he feels the sense of about injustice in the world. But before you settle into thinking I've got a nice, cynical, world-weary ally in the person of Coaleth, remember that his perspective is wise but spiky. His words are like a goad. They are sharp. They are true. But they don't leave us feeling nice and numb and anesthetized. They leave us feeling a little bit... Ah, I wasn't expecting that necessarily. Coalette's perspective is really important for us if we're going to think about injustices. Now, actually, as a little aside, while I've been preparing this and in other contexts when I've spoken on Ecclesiastes, I have mused at times, what would it be like to have Coalette as a member of your church? Um, interesting. Uh, it was probably the kindest way that I could come up with, you know, this is, that might be what it would be like. So Coalef would be, well, he would be, what kind of person would he be? Um, talking to Raj from Teesside earlier on, and it almost strikes me as this, Coalef is maybe a little bit like Darth Maul or something, <laughs> wandering in, do, 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 do. Um, some sort of slightly bizarre figure, Jedi-ish, not Jedi, oh, well, you know what I mean. Um, Perhaps you think that he is just world-weary and cynical. Well, no, he's not world-weary and cynical, the author of Ecclesiastes, because he believes that the world is God's handiwork, that it's a good creation. And even though he thinks that there are absurdities in the world, he still believes in a God of divine justice. And that's one of the reasons why he thinks that things are so absurd, because it doesn't seem to work precisely the way he thinks it should work, given there's a God of divine justice here, okay? 
Let's read Ecclesiastes 7 together. You can read along in a Bible if you've got one, or the words will come up on the screen. If you have 2020 vision at the back, um, they will appear on the screen here. I'm reading, this is from the NRSV translation, which uh, I have found to be the best for quite a lot of things, actually. Um, If you have an ESV, you might notice some differences, but here we go. In my vain life, says Coaleth, I have seen everything. There are righteous people who perish in their righteousness, and there are wicked people who prolong their life in evildoing. Do not be too righteous, and do not act too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Do not be too wicked, and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of the one without letting go of the other. For the one who fears God shall succeed with both. Wow. That's not a text you'll get read from a main session uh, devoted anytime soon. Uh, If your kids, if you have teenage kids come back from Amplify or Devoted saying, wow, they read this weird verse about not being too righteous or too wicked. It was really bizarre. It's not the kind of text that you hear in those contexts. Now, yesterday, uh, you might remember that I kind of had indulged my creative side by becoming a little bit Andrew Lloyd Webber. Uh, My father, I have traveled many dark paths to arrive at your holy temple. Um, And then Coalith glides in and it all goes crazy. Well, having gone Andrew Lloyd Webber yesterday, I'm going to go A.A. Milne this morning because in my head, which again is a dangerous place to explore, in my head, Coalith sounds like... uh, Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, right? And now he does for all of you as well, which is brilliant. In my vain life, I have seen everything. That was me at about 6.15 this morning. I am pretty much identical, like the ears, everything. Like, <laughs> that's, that's, that's me every morning until there's coffee in great abundance running through my, my body. Now, this, this text is interesting, Chapter 7 is very, very interesting, and some interpretation is required. Because clearly, Coaleth doesn't mean that he has seen literally everything. He doesn't mean that he has seen every single tiny minutiae that there is to see. And even, even were he to think that, a, like a few thousand years on down the line, we could probably say, well, Coaleth, we could probably show you a few things, I expect. This is deliberate exaggeration. It's hyperbole. He's making a point. He's not trying to say that he's literally seen everything, but he's saying he has gone a long way down this road. He has given it his attention. It's also helpful to notice that the word vain here is the Hebrew, it translates the Hebrew word hevel. And hevel is sometimes translated as vanity or meaningless. The best way to understand Havel is actually absurd. There's a commentator called uh, Michael Fox. Um, He has a a commentary called A Time to Tear Down. If you are sufficiently geekily inspired, uh, you might want to look that up and find it. Um, I don't have really any Hebrew particularly, and there's a lot of untranslated Hebrew in it. Uh, But if you're brave enough to battle through, it's probably the best commentary that I've found on the book of Ecclesiastes. But the word Havel means absurd. 
Because a lot of the things that Kohaleth says are Havel aren't actually meaningless or vain at all, but there is a sense of absurdity about them. And the absurdity for Kohaleth is that as he looks and sees everything, as he explores the ins and the outs and the ups and the downs of life under heaven in the world that God has made, certain things just seem crazy and absurd to him. He believes in divine justice, but over and over and over again, what he sees appears to play the lie to divine justice. And that's an absurdity to him. And so yesterday, if you remember, or was it the morning before, it's all blurring into a mush. Um, we talked about this idea that, that Koaleth is having a karma calamity. That karma is you do this and that happens. You get what you deserve. And he looks around the world and he thinks that's not true for most people. Uh, the sort of divvying out of justice is absurd. What's going on? This God who is glorious and transcendent, but the facts on the ground look absurd to me. It doesn't seem to marry up. Uh, and you know, ha, he jumps off piste, but 10 minutes into the life zone. Um, as a Christian, you, 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 must, you must recognize this. Jesus is Lord. We confess it. We worship him. He's the king of the nations. And yet still, people like Robert Mugabe seem to be able to rule unchecked and disenfranchise all kinds of people for his own gain. It's absurd. Jesus is king. And yet murders and killings and wars and fratricide and homicide and uh, infanticide and all kinds of other things that are awful happen. They play the lie to the sense of justice. What's going on? How do you handle it? The absurdity that Koaleth sees and feels, and that probably you and I see and feel as well, is reflected in texts like this. There are righteous people who perish in their righteousness, and there are wicked people who prolong their life in evil doing. I don't want you to miss the point. As I say to the church in York often, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. Okay? Koaleth isn't interested here in splitting hairs and closely defining who is righteous and who is wicked. That's not really the game that he's playing, if you like. What he is doing is simply flagging up this apparent absurdity that people don't seem to get what is coming to them, whether good or bad. Okay? And I guess that's fairly uncontroversial, what Koaleth has said so far. It's not, is it? We, we all must see that. We must all have experienced things. We think, that doesn't seem to be right. But then Koaleth's goad is being sharpened steadily. And he offers some startling advice in the absurdity of life. And talking about life's little absurdities, <laughs> here comes C. Culato. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. That's very kind of you. Si culato, culato, gelato, um, who's a, a, a male. Uh, in the, oh, it's the twos again. Ah, 
on uh, on Friday morning, it felt like all hell was breaking loose in Arctos too. Um, so if that's your child, then please off you go. Um, that can stay there. Uh, okay. Coleth offers this startling advice in the light of life's absurdities. What do you do about the absurdities of life? Well, here's what he suggests. Do not be too righteous and do not act too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Do not be too wicked and do not be a fool. That's always good advice. Why should you die before your time? What a strange thing to say in the light of the apparent absurdities that people don't get what is coming to them. It's weird. It's a very, very, very unusual verse. And because it's unusual, I'm moth to a flame. Um, I, I, one of my favorite verses is the one in Deuteronomy about do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Um, but you know what? Sometimes, let me just give you a little, a little hint here. Sometimes those most crazy verses are the ones that have the most satisfying theological outcomes if you really dig into them, Okay. If you want to hear that on our podcast, City Church, you can listen to my sermon on Deuteronomy on that verse. Okay? It's, it's amazing. Anyway, this is about Ecclesiastes. It's about Ecclesiastes and it's not about me. Um, <laughs> so we carry on with Ecclesiastes. There's a few things to say about this because it is unusual. I want us to understand that Coaleth is not suggesting that we become less righteous. That we don't cast off restraint and go, oh, well, hey-ho, diddly-hey, let's just crack on and do whatever we like. But neither is, he's not suggesting that we become less righteous or less wise. That's not what he's trying to do. He's suggesting rather that striving to become too righteous or too wise might actually be detrimental to your life. It might actually take you the other way. Now, if you remember where we began, Again, this, let's pause for a second to uh, appreciate. Yeah, it's like, this is, this is absurd. Um, yeah, Amos, a boy, twos, collect. Okay. Where we began this series, the end of Ecclesiastes, remember the author of the epilogue, this different voice warns us not to try and outdo Coaleth on wisdom. Don't try, and out, don't try and go to the degree that he has gone. Receive his wisdom. Don't try and outdo him. And this is exactly, I think, what Coaleth is warning against here. The, the sense of that Coaleth feels when he looks around the world and he sees things that are just absurd and things that don't seem to make sense is a direct result of his pursuing wisdom too much. The more you try and get wise, the more you try and know, the more understanding you glean, the more opportunity there is for you to find things that blow your head off because you don't understand. You think, oh, I know that now. I've got a hold of that. And something happens that kind of cooks your goose. I'm, I'm, I didn't, ugh. and you know, I love it. Sometimes young people come and say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm getting into reading this theology book and things. And, and you have to say, well, do you know, be careful because the more you learn, the more you think you know, the more you realize that you really don't know. And so with coalesce and with wisdom and with understanding, if you try and wrap your head around every contingency and absurdity that you see in the world, you will go bonkers. <laughs> you will. You will go do lally. You'll go nuts. In the 1800s, uh, a Victorian Catholic journalist and author called G.K. Chesterton, Gilbert Keith Chesterton, 
wrote a book called Orthodoxy. And he says in Orthodoxy that the crazy person is the person who tries to get the heavens into their head. They're trying to cram everything into their head. Let me understand. Sucking information. Downloading everything about life, the universe, everything into their heads. Because that's the crazy person. They're insane. They crack in the end because they can't. The wise man or the sane man, G.K. Chesterton says, just wants to get his head into the heavens. Oh, I love that. If you go around through life trying to get everything into your head, you will go crazy. Because there's things about God and the world that you will never get, and it will make you go nuts in the end. If you can get your head into the heavens and gain a perspective, that's a different thing entirely. And Coaleth and Ecclesiastes is trying to give us a perspective that leaves us in a place of saying, Ha, ah, I don't know. But I fear God and I keep his commandments because that's wisdom and that's the whole duty of everyone. All right. Perhaps we could reflect on the little psalm. I think it's Psalm 133 where David says, I don't occupy myself with things too high for me. Like a weaned child with his mother, I am at rest. I think Coaleth would say, yes, brother, that's good. Or maybe he wouldn't. He's tried really hard. Anyhow, (laughs) You know, on top of striving for understanding and the kind of craziness and the the sort of log jam in your head that can come when you're trying to get really wise and savvy, it it really breeds self-righteousness too, doesn't it? It just breeds a sense of self-righteousness. I know everything. And there's nothing worse than a Christian who, when you confess your struggles, your deepest woundedness, your brokenness, have an answer for it. They want to tell you, oh, if you only do this or if you just do that, oh, I know what that's all about, rather than someone who just weeps with you or just loves you. Okay, knowledge and understanding and striving after wisdom can lead to self-righteousness for those who think that they have attained it somehow. Now, if that's what Coaleth thinks about righteousness, what about wickedness? Well, Coaleth isn't suggesting or advocating that what we all really need is a few peccadilloes in our lives. (laughs) He's not saying this is not some sort of yin and yang philosophy that he's advocating He's not saying, well, okay, don't be too righteous and wise. Oh, instead, let me show you what's really cool. (laughs) What he's saying is, don't go flailing after wickedness. Don't go sliding off just because you can't understand things. You can't get everything in your head. Don't fall away and go nuts and, you know, embrace wickedness. Even though... Even though there are wicked people who appear to buck the trend and live long and prosperous lives, even though in Coalesce's mind that's just crazy and absurd, how do these wicked people who don't fear God, how do they end up living long, prosperous lives? The, the, The general trend is that a life of debauchery and disobedience to God is setting you on a path to an early grave. That's the general kind of trend, isn't it? So Coalith isn't saying you should throw yourself into wickedness. Perhaps we could say, and with absolute respect, and I don't mean to be offensive, perhaps we could say that for every Keith Richards, there are a thousand Amy Winehouses, For every one person who lives sex, drugs, and rock and roll and makes it, that's the the exception that proves the rule, if you like. That debauched living and godlessness leads to an early grave somehow, okay? 
So when Kohalath is saying these weird, unusual, uncomfortable words, he is trying to get us to gain a perspective. Don't go trying to be self-righteous, know everything. Don't go flailing after, wisdom, uh, after wickedness. So what does he say? What should we do? Kohalath goes on to say it's good that you should take hold of the one without letting go of the other. But the one who fears God shall succeed with both. Now, that, again, is such a weird verse. What on earth does it mean? Well, you should probably know that this is a very difficult verse to translate, uh, as evidenced by the difference between most of the major English translations of the Bible. So let me show you uh, the ESV, the NRSV, and the NIV. Here's three endings to that verse in three different translations. The one who fears God shall succeed with both. We just read. The one who fears God shall come out from both of them, is what the ESV translates it as. And then the good old NIV, whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Take your pick. Whichever one's your favorite. (laughs) I think if you were going to, if there's any preachers in the room, by the way, if you're going to preach on the book of Ecclesiastes, you don't just pick the one that you like the most, the one that fits with the general tenor of your sermon. You do your homework. You read the commentaries and you make a decision which translation of the Bible, of the, of the Hebrew text, actually makes the most sense. It's theologically the most appropriate and has the biggest kind of boom factor, if you like, in terms of interpretation and application to God's people. Again, this is not the verse that you will find preached in youth camps up and down the land. Avoid all extremes. <laughs> That's not something that you're going to hear. It does sound like Koaleth is saying that we ought to try to be a bit righteous and a bit wicked, doesn't it? That's how it sounds. You should try and be a little bit, you know, don't, don't, be too, don't be too extreme. And sometimes in Christian settings, you get the kind of the radical, oh, you know, don't, be, don't be too into God, keep it real. That's not what Koaleth's doing here. Or sometimes you get people who are uber religious and he's not suggesting that either. I think that what is happening here, I think how we might sum up what Koaleth is trying to do in this passage in the light of the absurdities of life in a world where there's a a God of divine justice who's behind it all, I think that Koaleth is basically trying to get through to us the reality that for as long as you live... As long as you totter around this good planet sucking in oxygen, as long as you are here, you are only ever going to be a mixed bag of righteousness and wickedness. For as long as you are on God's good earth, you will only ever be a mixed bag of righteousness and wickedness. And the extent to which you are happy to live with that tension is the extent to which you have become wise in Koalet's perspective. Do you understand? He is not saying that you should throw yourself after wickedness or you should throw yourself after righteousness. He is trying to bring home to you the realities of every single one of us. We're a mixed bag. We are all on a sliding scale somewhere of Christ-likeness and really wretchedness and wickedness. And that will always be true of you. The wisest, godliest saint 
is a mixed bag of righteousness and wickedness. The Apostle Paul knew that he was a mixed bag of righteousness and wickedness. The only purely sinless person that's ever been is Jesus. He's the one who bucks the trend because he's the head of a new humanity who will, in the resurrection, be pure and perfect and be like him. But until then, you're a mixed bag. You don't settle for your sin, but you must realize that you will never be anything less than this tension, this mixed bag. I think it's important that we understand that. Because sometimes the kind of way that we present the gospel, we present Christian faith, it almost gives you the impression that if you just pray a prayer or start to believe something or try hard enough or whatever else gets zapped by heaven's taser enough times, that it will just do away with all your wickedness and sinfulness. And it doesn't. It doesn't. That's why the command exists to fear God and keep his commandments. The miracle is that with all the mixed bagness of our lives, God accepts us and he views us as righteous in Christ. You know, you have no inherent righteousness of your own. Jesus is your righteousness. The Father sees you through a filter of Christ. Your sonship, your adoption is in him. There's not a sonship separate from the son, you realize. It's not that he's the first one and then there's lots of other ones on a similar level. No, you have sonship in Christ, in the son. So he views you and accepts you in Christ. But your life now, well, golly, aren't we all a mixed bag? Is there anybody here who would be willing to say, well, I'm not? No, I didn't think so. You don't turn into a superhero when you become a Christian. But here's the question. Why does the fear of God keep us from extremes of righteousness or wickedness? I think the answer is related to Coalette's observation of the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. The idea of life and living and existence. Coaleth seems to be suggesting that we abandon every notion that righteousness or wickedness, what we achieve or we think we achieve, has any bearing on the length of our life or the success of our life. Because it doesn't. There are righteous people and they snuff it ahead of time. Did they, 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 didn't, die early. they didn't die early because they were wicked. They were righteous people. And there are wicked people, and they seem to go on and on and on and on and on. Don't go thinking that you can add to your life by striving for righteousness. But also understand that your wickedness, and maybe it helps us to understand that sometimes the bad things that happen to us in our lives is not because you sinned somewhere. Not because something you did, some wicked thing, you know, why does it, why does it always rain on me? Is it because I lied when I was 17? asked Travis. But well, we're all in trouble. Maybe we all lied when we were 17, and this is why we're getting this weather devoted. <laughs> the length of your life, the success of your life, if that's the right phrase to use even, does not depend upon your righteousness or your wickedness, because Coalette sees an absurd thing that some people who it should go well for it doesn't, and others who they should get what's coming to them don't. It doesn't have any bearing on length of life. 
And the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, in Kohelet's opinion. And fearing God and keeping his commandments is the way that we are supposed to live wisely before God in the world. And it's not as though wisdom is some third alternative. You have righteousness on one hand and wickedness. And well, I kind of keep this middle balanced line of wisdom. No, that's not what Kohelet's doing. Kohelet sees wisdom as the the right orientation towards God and life in the world. It's the way to live. It's the posture towards a life before and with God in his world, no matter what our lives are like. Fearing God and keeping his commandments, no matter what kind of storms come sweeping in our way, no matter what glories and successes we get. Fear God, keep his commandments. Wisdom doesn't buy you time or privilege. Wisdom doesn't somehow put you on a higher plane of Christianity. There is not a binary thing going on here with non-wise people and wise people on there. Wisdom is about posture, uh, how we direct ourselves in life. And it strips away the easy assumptions about the way faith and life and in the world with God works. It takes away some of the nice, cozy notions that we cherish as believers at times. Koaleth leaves us uncomfortably hopeful. He leaves us disarmed because all the stuff that we gather around ourselves as a sort of a buffer zone almost falls away. It falls away. And we're left vulnerable, but truly human. Vulnerable, but alive. We so often use our faith or our religion, whatever you want to call it. I I say religion in the broadest possible terms. I don't mean it in the terms of striving for acceptance with God somehow. We use it as an anesthetic, don't we? Life is hard. Bam! A shot of God. And I drift away. And I just don't think that Kohelet sees faith and life with God in the world like that. Fear God keep his commandments. That's wisdom. It's a posture. It's a way of approaching life. It doesn't take away all the ouchy bits, but it gives us a sense of God and of truly human living. Eugene Peterson, who I love, and if you have never read any Eugene Peterson other than the message, then you really should because he's amazing. I didn't know that Eugene Peterson had written like 40 books. Um, I just, I knew the message. And then someone introduced me to his memoirs and I was like, wow. Um, So if you want something that will really encourage, inspire, but challenge as well, Eugene Peterson's your man. Here's what Eugene Peterson says about Koaleth. Koaleth empties us of the inner noise that we supposed was religion and the cluttered piety we supposed was faith. Amen. You see, all the things that we gather around us that we think this is what it is and Koaleth comes along with his goad and bursts balloons and impales egos and leaves us vulnerable going, ouch, but actually alive and vulnerable and open before God, which is a good posture to have when it comes to life in the world. Very briefly, let me give you a couple of perhaps applications. Um, I think that this kind of stuff, this idea, this teaching, this idea of wisdom and the fear of God, 
addresses sometimes the creeping feeling that some Christians have. And I think maybe it's actually competition somehow. It's a competition thing. Uh, It addresses the feeling that somehow I should be doing better as a Christian given my upbringing, my background, my church background, my education, my uh, economic and social positioning in the world. I should be doing better than I am. Why? Why? Why do you think that? You, you suck. You were dead in sin. You're a mixed bag of righteousness and wickedness, and you will never, ever, ever be anything other than that until the day Christ raises you from the dead. Why would you imagine somehow that you should be doing better than you are in your Christian faith? You should be glad that you are alive, that God hasn't... Like the Monty Python foot. <laughs> Whoops. Maybe you're taking yourself far too seriously. And Koaleth is out to burst your ego. He wants to pop the balloon. He wants to say, stop taking yourself so seriously. Are you the church policeman or policewoman? Are you the church referee? The black and white striped shirt with the whistle? Beep! That was a wrong interpretation. And... If you're listening to this on a recording, you just missed the best bit. (laughs) And everybody here is laughing at you. (laughs) Uh, But don't worry. (laughs) Just fear God and keep his commandments. (laughs) Um, We we don't take God seriously enough. And what I mean by that is we we make it all about us somehow. Uh, And that's a bit of an issue probably, isn't it? Um, And then when we make it all about us, we think that really if I can just get more of God on my side, I'll do better myself. But no, it's not really about that. You're a mixed bag. So fear God and keep his commandments. Uh, and then as well, just one final thing. is just, again, uh, the, the, the kind of self-righteousness thing. Um, I think that it's really important that we allow texts like this to dismantle our self-righteousness, uh, to dismantle the sense that we're somehow better than other people, more godly, more pious, or whatever else it might be. Coleth won't let us get away with that. He won't. And we all just have to fear God and keep his commandments somehow. Okay, now, having got the mic back on again, I'll need to take two minutes to have a download with your next door neighbor, uh, with the people around you. Maybe if you're here as a group from your church, reflect, discuss what's left you feeling disarmed and vulnerable and uncomfortable, but somehow like, oh, I see. Um, have a chat for a couple of minutes, and then we're going to come back and change tack, and then I'm going to do what, we were, what should have been from the start today. Okay, so, uh, so have a few minutes to download. Righto, okay. Just a... <laughs> no. <laughs> Was that... Unre- no, I'm not flossing. Oh, he's going... If, um, listen, okay, if you want the slides for this, we can... That could probably be arranged, okay? So you don't need to take photos. Um, it's not that good of a screen, <laughs> so, um, I could send. I could probably arrange somehow for a PDF or something to be available on the Christ Central, the devoted website or something. Um, I'll figure that out. So I don't feel like you've got to photograph it all now. Um, let's just take a moment. Two or three people, two or three groups. Let's come on. Let's give us some feedback. Let's see. Maybe you can express something better than me. Maybe you can kind of put words to something that someone else is feeling. Questions, comments. We'll take just a few minutes to do this, and then we'll move on. Well, everybody's got everything and has understood everything. It'll be a first time ever.
Okay. Oh, sorry. I nearly missed you. Um, you know, you, you, we were talking about how, um, how long your life is, depending on how righteous or wicked you are. And what we have to remember is that that life isn't what life's all about, is it? Because as Christians, our, our life is more about our death than about our life. Okay, so the comment was that, that as Christians, our, our life is about more than just here, about our life in, in this moment, that there's a, an eschatology, you didn't use the word eschatology, but there's an eschatological sense in which we are, uh, we, there's, there is an end times thing, there's resurrection, there's eternal life, um, and so the length of our lives here at the moment is, is not, really the, it's not really the point. Um, I, I agree with you to an extent. I think that, yes, absolutely, there is a resurrection for us. Um, but I would also point out that, that we have a, a, an awful lot in Scripture that is very much about this life. It's not disembodied. And, it, and, and the Bible cares a lot about what we do here and how we live now, which is very, very important. And it's not all necessarily correlated to what happens then. Um, the only op- the only opportunity you ever have to live by faith is now, right? You're not in tomorrow yet, and yesterday's gone. You live by faith now as an embodied person. The goal of the Christian life is not to shed this tatty matter and get a disembodied soul and we can float around on clouds and sing jolly hill song for eternity. Um, <laughs> as wonderful as that would be, um, the, the goal is not going to heaven. The goal is heaven coming to earth and earth and heaven united together and a new heaven and a new earth. And so there will be bodies and food and work that is not frustrating and annoying and difficult. There will be joy and parties and celebration and touch and sound and it's very much embodied. And so how we live now is very, very important because although it's not then, it's not a million miles different in a sense to then because it will still be embodied, you see? And so what Coalith is doing and wisdom is very much about how you live now. Um, I don't know if you were around when we touched on the, he's put eternity in men's souls. To say that Ecclesiastes says God has put eternity in man's heart or soul, it's not eternity. It just He's saying he's got a sense of past and future. Uh, Kaoleth isn't interested immediately in eternal life in heaven or whatever else we might conceive it. He's interested in how we live now as embodied, wise, godly, God-fearing people. And that's really, really important um, because it's not about escaping somehow. It's about we live here. Okay? You look like you're about to ask a question. So obviously we've he- heard you just summarize that he talks about the experience of life and how we handle the experience of life does Coleth actually comment on what's the point of life it almost seems like he skirts around it well i mean he says all kinds of things that are the point um you know the stuff about eating and drinking um, about loving your, loving your toil and giving yourself to that. There's nothing better for man than that he should enjoy his toil, enjoy his food and drink. We should celebrate that. Um, it's not a salvation comment. It's a life as we live it now comment. Um, 
And perhaps as evangelicals, we sometimes think only in terms of salvation. And what really matters the very most of all is, is salvation and sin and righteousness. And perhaps a more broadly Catholic, kind of small C Catholic view is that the, the Christian life and salvation is something that's happening in all of life. It's not something that's just touching some inner ghost version of me. But it's something that actually works out in my work and in my family and in the way I eat and drink. And all the kind of spheres of life are all part of this salvation thing that God is doing. Um, God cares about that. Um, Jesus didn't come to us as a ghost or a ghoul or as a myth. He comes as a person. The word became flesh and is still flesh. He's resurrected flesh. Okay, And so the fleshliness and earthliness and embodiedness of of all of Christianity can be found, I think, here in Coaleth. It's not necessarily a million miles different. It's about a life of faith embodied as a person now, which for now is the only opportunity you get to live a life of embodied faith, right? With your, you know, with my achy, creaky, metal-filled leg and all the rest of it, that's, this is how I get to live my life, by faith in the present. I don't know if I've completely answered your question or yours. Um, I'm probably just mumbling on because... Yeah, because that's what I do. Um, but you understand, okay? This is about how we get on as human beings, as actual embodied people, not ghosts in a machine somehow, right? Is it okay if I move on? <laughs> please, 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 please. We've got near to something here, which is uh, how late did we start, by the way? Are you happy to go to like maybe 22? We started late. Is that all right? Or do you need to go? If you have to go, it's okay. I won't embarrass you or anything like that. If you need to leave, that's all cool. But let, let's get into this next bit because we've got close to this now. And, and I think I want to try and touch on it because this is the sort of stuff that pops up in conversation and in church life that uh, it's not always easy to kind of give a time to address these kinds of questions. Uh, and I wanted to speak a little bit about Ecclesiastes and the Bible. Um, perhaps as you've been sitting in these sessions either today or the last couple of mornings, you've been wondering, well, this is all very well and good, Ecclesiastes, uh, but isn't that the Old Testament? <laughs> um, I mean, the fact that you've shown up to a, a session on the Old Testament is really encouraging to me. Um, and the first morning, there's about six people sitting here with about two minutes to go before it started. And I thought, wow, this is the level of interest in the Old Testament amongst Christ Central churches. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Um, and then, well, you guys have all showed up. And it's amazing. It's great. I, I think it's so, so encouraging. But it's a familiar question, isn't it? Isn't that the Old Testament? And I've been heading that question off a little bit. Not because I don't want to answer it, because I do. And I'm going to. But I wanted to make sure that I answered it in a particular way. Um, in a particular sort of particular setting, and in some ways, maybe if you haven't even raised that question yourself, I'm, I'm raising it for you. I'm lifting it up and shoving it in your face to say, "What are you going to do about this? How should we think about this?" And I want to try and answer the question: Isn't this the Old Testament, and how do we deal with that in a way that will help you to think about reading? and interpreting scripture, and for those who do preaching or teaching, particularly the Old Testament, in a richer kind of way. Um, Raj from Teesside again was so helpful this morning. He just encouraged me in the prayer meeting um, that, that one of the things that's been happening for him is just an excitement about the Bible, an excitement about Ecclesiastes, an excitement about this text that he was like, whoa, okay. And 
To be honest, if that's all you get from these life zones, it's job done for me. Seriously. That would be amazing. I would go home. I was going to say I'd die a happy man. That, <laughs> I would go back to my tent a happy man, knowing that I had been able to impart at least some sense of an excitement and a, a, a deeper hunger for the Bible. So let's try and get into this a little bit. Follow me with this. Let's think about Ecclesiastes and Christian scripture. I've chosen that very, very deliberately. The document that we call Ecclesiastes belongs to the collection of 66 books that Christians call the Bible. Right? We mostly all have one, whether paper or digital or whatever else. That's not particularly controversial, unless you're a Catholic. And then there's more. <laughs> you have extra. Now, however... As much as we might all say, well, yes, of course, 66 books, the Bible, da 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 what we're often guilty of forgetting is that to speak about the Bible is not necessarily as straightforward or as obvious as we might all like to think. We all, because some of us have been Christians for a long time and have been around churches for a long time, can rattle off phrases like, well, the Bible says, or we talk about the Bible and we've all got an assumed sense that we know exactly what we're talking about when we refer to the Bible. But it's not necessarily as straightforward. And so I want to try and make Scripture slightly unfamiliar with you to try and piece it back together again in a sense where you're going, oh, yeah, okay, that's helpful. I hope. That's the goal. Of the 66 books that we call the Bible, 39, which Christians call the Old Testament, exist in a completely different independent format as the Hebrew Scriptures. So what we call the Old Testament isn't the Old Testament to Jews. It's the Bible. It's Scripture. It's the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, among the many, 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 many things that could be said about this, I simply want to make the point this morning that when Christians sometimes somewhat casually talk about the Bible, what they are doing is describing two very distinct collections of documents, the Hebrew Scriptures and what we call the New Testament, the witness, the apostolic witness to the person of Jesus and the birth of the church. Two distinct collections that we hold together and confess together to be Christian scripture. Now, I'll say a little bit more, a few more specific things about what I mean by Christian scripture in a moment. But in the meantime, I want to just gently but firmly urge you, maybe goad you, (laughs) not to make the classic mistake of driving a wedge between the Old and the New Testaments and writing off, if not in heart, at least maybe in practice, the Old Testaments. As though one were, and now please hear me carefully, as as though one were inherently more Christian than the other. I think that's sometimes what happens. We think that the Old Testament is somehow inherently less Christian But that's never been the church's confession, because the church has confessed these two collections of documents, the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament, as Christian Scripture, the Bible. Okay? I don't want your confession about Scripture to waver from that. 
Now, of course, the New Testament, you know, this is what I mean, don't hear what I'm not saying. The New Testament refers to Jesus explicitly and directly. And so in one sense, it's very obviously why. This is, we know this is Christian scripture from that sense. But the church, for as long as we've had what we call the Bible, has confessed Old and New Testament together as Christian scripture. And so how do we deal with that? It's obvious, I think, to anybody who tries to read the Bible that the Old and New Testament are significantly different from one another in certain senses. Do you recognize that? Yes, Old and New Testament, different. Sometimes words like boring, irrelevant are bandied around about the Old Testament. I can understand that. There are interesting bits. Sometimes when I'm reading through the Bible and I get to the long lists of names, um, I skip them. <laughs> I look out for moments where there's a join in the text and I, you know, I, I, I read like that. There's bits you think, hmm, I don't really get that. But it's, this is Christian scripture that we're talking about. So how do we begin to understand? How do we hold them together? How do we read them together? What's, what's a way that we can think of that can help us to understand Old Testament texts like Ecclesiastes, like Deuteronomy and goats cooked in their mother's milk, like Torah or Kings or Jephthah's rash vow or any weird, weird texts that seem a million miles away from us? How can we begin to read them and understand them as Christian scripture? Well, I want to suggest to you that the way that we can do this is by learning to think theologically about the Bible a little bit more. We have to gain some theological conviction. And I think the theological conviction that I hold about this is that both Old and New Testament together bear witness to the one God who has now been definitively revealed in Jesus Christ. Uh, There it is. You don't need to take a picture. Uh, Old and New Testaments together bear witness to the one God who has now been definitively revealed in Jesus Christ. Uh, This was the problem that Marcion had uh, centuries and centuries ago. He thought that the God of the Old Testament was not the same as the God of the New. And he rejected the Old Testament because the God of the Old Testament was like that and the God of the New was like that. That's a heresy. Christian scripture bears witness to the one God who has been revealed in Jesus. Perhaps you could put it like this in a classical formulation. The New Testament is concealed within the Old, and the Old Testament is revealed by the New. Or in very simple terms, we could say that the whole of Scripture, the whole of Christian Scripture bears witness to Jesus as its subject. But quite how that works out in practice is a matter of some debate. Now, again, the temptation for me here is to go off on a really massive trip about methods of interpretation, which would send everybody to sleep, apart from one or two die-hard people who like that kind of thing. It would be great fun for me, not so exciting for you. But what I want to really get at is some ways that we could approach Ecclesiastes as Christian scripture in the sense that I've just been describing. Let's just pause for... Oh, okay, all right. Parents of kids, you need to leave at 12.30. Okay. We might not finish this at all. All right. That's okay. That's not your fault. We can make it your fault. Um, 
To understand Ecclesiastes or an Old Testament text, we have to think about how, if we're thinking about Scripture theologically, what we need to do is start to think about how Scripture refers to the identity of the one God. We need to think about who God is, his identity as revealed in Scripture, and definitively so in the person of Jesus. So what I'm going to do is kind of try and give us a wide-angle zoom, like a wide-angle lens thing with a big theological picture of Jesus' identity, and then zoom in to get some more close-up ideas, all right? Um, Let's go on to this quickly. Here's the heart of Christian faith. Jesus is Lord. This is the central confession of Christian faith. Only the Spirit can, only by the Spirit can you say Jesus is Lord. Only by the Spirit can you confess that the man, Jesus of Nazareth, the prophet, the sage, the rabbi, the teacher, is Lord. That this specific human person is to be related to in the same kind of way as Israel related to Yahweh as Lord. Jesus, that man, is Lord, okay? It's a significant statement of which there are two parts to it. Now, Mike Higton from Durham University has said, acknowledging this Jesus as Lord doesn't mean that we're doing something different from acknowledging the God of Israel as Lord. There's one God. This human life, Jesus of Nazareth, is what the God of Israel is doing to exercise God's lordship. Jesus is the living and active word of God, the self-revelation of God in the flesh. Wonderful. To speak about Jesus as Lord, this is the definitive revelation of God. And so in certain ways, the whole of our scripture bears witness to this central revelation, but in different kind of ways. And it's not always so easy as just making a straight line jump from that to that or saying, well, this is all about that. And we write off all the rest. Somehow all the scriptures bear witness to this Jesus. Now, what I want to point out is that every single New Testament author, pretty much, I think it's every single one without exception, tries to paint a, paint a picture of Jesus as sharing in the very divine identity of the one God. He tries, the, the, the New Testament is trying to show us that Jesus is not, is not just some random man who people thought, oh, maybe he's God, but he shares in the divine identity. He participates in God's identity. And one of the ways they portray that is that Jesus shares in the divine wisdom. Wisdom is one of the categories that Jews had for describing God's identity. In Proverbs chapter 8, you may recall that there is a passage that speaks about divine wisdom, and the person of wisdom speaks. It's like a personified thing. And so what we find is that God's wisdom, or wisdom is somehow belongs to God's identity. And then the New Testament picks that up and makes Jesus the very embodiment of that wisdom. It's not somehow that Jesus was wise, and well, God's wise too. Two, but this is God's wisdom, which is God. There's not a difference between God's wisdom and God. In Jesus, we discover that wisdom and Jesus and God's wisdom, they're all part of this same Godhead whom we confess and worship. Uh, I'm sorry I'm rushing a little bit because I'm aware of time drifting away. Let's just look at a few texts. Colossians 1.16, for by him, It's talking about Jesus. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Well, 
Proverbs 8 says that by wisdom, God created all things. So this is a text in which Paul takes Israel's wisdom tradition and applies it to Jesus. He is the embodiment of the wisdom of God. And so he shares in the identity of God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus, by whom he appointed, or whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Divine wisdom. Jesus, the embodiment of the divine wisdom. Wow, it's amazing. If we move on into John's gospel, we find this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's not only talking about the Logos, the Word, God spoke in the beginning, but it's also bringing in wisdom. The prologue of John deals with wisdom and Word and Torah. I mean, it's mighty. And so Jesus, this in flesh embodiment of God is the wisdom of God fleshed out, and it's glorious and wonderful. Um, wisdom in the Synoptic Gospels. This is going to, this is not, this is getting crazy. Um, Luke eleven forty nine. Therefore also, the, this is Jesus speaking, therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles. And then in Matthew, look at what Matthew says then. Jesus says, therefore, I send you prophets and apostles. Now, I I don't want to get into the kind of ins and outs of why Luke and Matthew differ there. I simply want to show you how Matthew has managed to appropriate that and say that Jesus speaks in such a sense that he is the wisdom of God. So we've got the exalted Christ in Colossians, who is the embodiment of wisdom, and in John and in Hebrews, and here, the very much fleshly, embodied, earthly Jesus, the human person, as the embodiment of of divine wisdom. Amazing, wonderful. Jesus is the very person of God in flesh, the wisdom and word of God. He is fully God, completely, fully, the wholeness of divine nature dwelling in him bodily. Boom, amazing. Now, Ecclesiastes, Matthew, 1 Corinthians. Let me give you three brief snapshots of how we might think about Ecclesiastes in the light of Jesus as the embodiment of wisdom. We read at the end of Ecclesiastes 12, the epilogist, the author of the epilogue, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for that is the whole duty of everyone. This is what wisdom looks like at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's how it's summed up. The author of the epilogue sums up Coalette's teaching by saying, fear God and keep his commandments. I want to suggest that there is a conceptual link. There is an important link between this and the words of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. During his, uh, one of his responses to Satan in the wilderness, we find this in Matthew 4. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Now, he's not quoting from Deuteronomy, but can you see the kind of conceptual link that exists there? Fear God and keep his commandments is not a whole lot different to worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Can you see that? Does that make sense? Now, that's really interesting because this text comes in the context of Satan trying to tempt Jesus and and, and knock him off track on the way of the cross. 
Satan is trying to get him to go a different way and embrace a different route to the cross. And Jesus resists it in words that are not dissimilar to the words of Ecclesiastes about fearing God and keeping his commandments. And now think about what happens if we turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. We proclaim Christ crucified. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. If the whole of Scripture bears witness to Jesus, and if Jesus is to be understood as the wisdom of God, and if that wisdom of God is most clearly embodied and seen in Christ crucified as the wisdom of God, then I think it's possible for us to say that all of Scripture bears witness to Christ crucified. Because all of Scripture points to that one God. And in Christ is his definitive revelation. And not just in Christ, but in Christ crucified, where we understand this as the wisdom of God. And what I want to suggest as we wrap this all up is if you want to try and understand a wisdom book like Ecclesiastes as Christian scripture, then you must learn to read it as somehow pointing towards this revelation of God as cruciform. The wisdom of God that looks like a difficult, painful obedience, fearing God, keeping his commandments. I even reflected the other morning Coleth, or not Coleth, the, the author of the epilogue talks about the words of the wise are like goads and nails firmly fixed. Oh, and I thought, oh, wisdom and nails. Wisdom and the pain of a nail piercing something. The, the embodiment of wisdom is nailed to a cross. And that shows you the wisdom of God. This is what wisdom looks like, an obedient life directed toward God that gives itself over and says, your will be done, not my will be done. I think that Ecclesiastes teaches that message in different ways and ways that you have to think carefully and you have to be interpretively sensitive and you have to be interpretively wise. But I think that it points us towards this kind of life, a Christian life. Ecclesiastes is Christian scripture. It bears witness to the one God, and the one God has revealed God's self perfectly and fully in the person of Christ, and particularly Christ crucified as the embodiment of his wisdom. We get to read the Gospels in the light of Ecclesiastes, and we get to read Ecclesiastes in the light of the Gospels. It all bears witness to the cruciform wisdom of God. So, thanks for being wonderfully patient. Thanks for humoring me with my awful gags and my flossing. And I hope that it's been interesting for you. We will somehow make, I can make notes or slides and things, probably available as if by magic. Um, so keep an eye out on the devoted website and they may well appear. Um, I'm available to talk to if you want to ask questions and things. But thanks. God bless you. Enjoy the rest of the weekend.